so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Well, welcome back to Weekly Tech, a podcast of ethics, theology, and philosophy in a technological society. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Keith Stanglin of the Center for Christian Studies in Austin, Texas. He's the author of a new book entitled Ethics Beyond Rules, How Christ's Call to Love Informs Our Moral Choices. Dr. Stanglin has his PhD from Calvin Theological Seminary and is the director of the Center for Christian Studies in Austin, Texas, and a professor of theology at Heritage Christian University in Florence, Alabama. He's the author of several books, including The Letter and Spirit of Biblical Interpretation, and Jacob Arminius, The Theologian of Grace. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Stanglin, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book and what was kind of what was your hopes as you were putting it together? Yeah, thank you, Jason. It's good to be with you. My background is uh, teaching theology uh, for over 16 years now and, and history and ethics. So I've taught a lot of courses in Christian ethics, particularly at the college level. I think what really inspired me to try to put this in the book form that I did was when a few years ago I taught a Sunday school class for our high school, uh, for our teens at church. And, you know, the content of ethics is sort of there. The conclusions uh, that I wanted to teach were the same, but teaching in a setting like that sort of forces one to make the material more accessible, dare I say, more interesting as well. And so putting it in a format like that uh, was a good exercise for me. And so it was well-received mostly, you know, and, and parents and other adults who kind of sat in on the class were encouraging me to maybe put this in some sort of form that might go beyond just uh, the couple of dozen kids in that class. So uh, I thought about uh, the idea of putting this into a book, and I wanted to write it so that non-specialists, and particularly those who are younger than I, people like my kids, you know, two of whom were in that class, so that they would have an accessible guide and resource to help them think through moral reasoning. Like, what does that look like? When you're faced with a moral question, what do ethics look like um, as a Christian? And then particularly with some of these issues, as I would just say, case examples 
some of them hot button issues in our society, some of them just ethical, perennial ethical questions that Christians face and, and ought to be asking about. So that was it. It's taking material I've always been interested in, but trying to make it a little more accessible for um, people who have never had a course in ethics before and uh, never seen it modeled, sort of how to approach difficult questions. Yeah, that was one thing that I really appreciated about your book is is reading through it. Is it is I think you succeed in that goal. It's something that's approachable. It's something that explains some really difficult concepts, even in ethics, in a way that's approachable, that's uh, helpful. Because that's one of the things that, especially what we do here on this podcast and talk a lot about, is how ethics is really discipleship. It's a it's an integral part of the Christian life. But I think historically, especially in wider evangelicalism, there has been kind of a neglect in some sense of formal ethical training. And you say that even as parents, even sometimes pastors, might have had one class if they went to seminary in ethics. It was like an intro class, and that was basically it. And not that we ever want to neglect the study of God's word and doctrine and theology, as important as they are, is that I love one of the uh, influences on my life is a man named Herman Bavinck, a Dutch theologian from the turn of the century. And one of the things that Bavinck talks about is theology and ethics as kind of partners. They're on the same plane, is that God loving us and telling us and revealing himself to us is the nature of theology. And the nature of ethics is us loving God. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you was, why do you think that maybe that emphasis on ethics has been neglected sometimes within the church especially as a formal discipline and study, because maybe you get one or two classes or maybe none at all in theological education. Why do you think that is the case? Yeah, that's a good question. I agree, first of all, that in a lot of seminary programs, you can do a whole MDiv and never have even one required course in Christian ethics. And so, yeah, a lot of ministers, professional ministers can get out without that. Um, so I agree it's an issue. I, I don't know that I have a simple answer for it. For evangelicals, it may have something to do with a kind of simplistic attitude that uh, we sometimes fall into. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And that's fine for things that the Bible addresses, maybe on the explicit level of rules. But what about things not addressed explicitly in Scripture that are pressing ethical issues? What about abortion? What about technology? And then what about when there are rules in Scripture, but they run against the grain of popular culture? So it leaves Christians kind of woefully unprepared to scratch below the surface and say why something might be right or wrong. So that's part of it. I think also just our popular culture and our public discourse do not model ethical reflection at all, not well. Most discussion of issues, when you think about it, in public discourse, whatever that might be, a a television interview, a three-minute segment on a cable news show, they're presented as two or more subjective opinions. So it's like two people kind of debating whether you know, coffee's better with cream in it or not. Well, it's just a matter of taste, right? And so what kind of, you know, what kind of argument will you make in favor of a subjective opinion? Or it's presented as one side is right, the other is not, but it's still, the, the conversation is full of assertions and it 
you know, at best, shouting match at worst. And so we don't see what ethical reflection might look like. And in the church, we don't either. I mean, part of it may also be just kind of spitballing here. It might be that it's easier to talk about theology on an abstract level that doesn't get to the ethical question of how then should we live, which is the point of theology, by the way, is to come to that question and for it to, uh, you know, what we learn about God and his relationship with his people to change our lives. Um, It's easier to stop short of that. But yeah, if you're looking at scripture, you're looking at Paul or whatever, you know, uh, theology is never as an end in itself. It always leads to the ethical question. It always leads to um, a change of life. It always leads to the exhortation to follow Christ and become more like God and in his image. So, Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to describe it. And that's kind of pulling in some Bob Inc. even is these are interrelated disciplines that kind of build and on top of one another. So as you study ethics, you can't neglect theology, but as you study theology, you can't neglect ethics. And I think that's kind of a beautiful relationship that I think you model really well in the book. Early on, you write about how Christian ethics is an ethics of freedom, not specifically of laws and rules. So I wanted you kind of unpack that a little bit because I think that for some, they totally agree with that. Others might balk against that a little bit and say, what do you what do you mean not laws and rules? Doesn't the Bible tell us to do this and not do this and thou shall not do this and do this? So kind of explain a little bit about what you mean by an ethics of freedom as opposed to simply laws and rules. Yeah, so the book is actually titled from one of my chapters, Ethics Beyond Rules. It's meant to be provocative. And I say in there very, uh, very clearly that Christian ethics is not about rules. So when an immature person hears that, they think, ah, that means we can do whatever we want, right? We have the freedom to do whatever we want. And what an immature or a sinful person wants is usually disordered, you know, maybe evil. When a mature fully formed, perfected in Christ person hears ethics is not about rules, they also say, ah, that means we can do whatever we want. And what a person like that wants is to do the good. And so that's the point. Um, I think we would all recognize that rules are basically for the immature. The more rules that are needed, that is a, a reflection of the greater amount of immaturity of the person or people that those rules are um, intended for. So little kids need lots of rules. You know, keep your hands to yourself. Look both ways before you cross the street and so on. Um, don't put your hand on the hot stove, right? Don't throw food at the table, right? You don't need to tell, uh, hopefully, an adult any of those things I just mentioned. Hopefully, we've learned we're more mature, and it would actually be an insult if we walked into someone's house and they approached us and said, now, as we sit down to dinner, you know, don't play with your food, right? We would find that insulting. You know, the, the rules are there for the immature, those who don't yet know, all right? And it guides them. There's a good reason for it, but it's meant 
to uh, move a person beyond those rules. And so that's sort of the point here is that rules are not ends in themselves. They are means to something greater. So as you know, our purpose as human beings made in the image of God is to become like God, to be holy as he is holy. So whatever function laws and rules play, and it's an important function, I want to you know, reiterate that, they are means to an end. Rules are not the goal. They're a means only for the immature and the not yet fully formed. Now, I want to also emphasize none of us is yet perfected and fully formed, but some of us are farther along on that road than others of us are. So God is both you know, the highest good and the most free. The goal is that our character be formed in such a way that we freely and naturally and habitually choose the good. And so we are free, but it's an ethic of freedom, but it's one that in which we've cultivated the virtues and we don't want to do anything that is less than good. And we see it throughout scripture. Um, I think the clearest uh, example is in Paul. Um, sometimes uh, one old book called him the, the apostle of the heart set free. So Galatians is a great example of that. You know, Galatians 5 verse 1, literally in freedom, Christ has freed us. Colossians 2, uh, I think, is a great example of the balance here. Paul says in Colossians 2, uh, repeatedly, the Christian life is not about rules. You know, there are those who say, uh, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste, and have all these rules. And he says, that's not what this is about. So you're free, he says in Colossians 2. You've been freed by Christ. So live in that freedom. And then you read on in Colossians 3, and wow, it looks like he has a lot of rules. You know, <laughs> strip off the old man and all of its uh, ways, you know, and, and put off all of these vices, he says. And, and clothe yourself with, put on all of these virtues uh, that are Christ-like. So... It's not totally without rules. It's not an ethic without rules as much as one that is meant to move us beyond the rules. Yeah, and I think that's really helpful. And listeners probably will pick up that you were kind of in many ways comparing different ethical systems. And in the formal study of ethics, you have uh, virtue ethics, which we're starting to see kind of a resurgence in uh, popularity and in study, which is, I think, really helpful. And I think you model that really well in this book. And kind of comparing that to a deontological or duty-based, kind of rule-based approach, and then even a consequentialist approach, uh, which is all about the consequences. So there really often isn't a defined line of good and bad as much as it's at what's better or best and what's better or worse, kind of comparing these type of things. And that's really popular, especially in a lot of secular ethical systems. So I want to dig in a little bit more on this idea of in the book, you suggest that the central virtue, the central question uh, that we should be asking is, what does love require? That's kind of the baseline question that we should be asking anytime we're faced with a moral or ethical decision. Can you explain what love means in that context, what it requires, and on what basis Christians are to love? Sure, yeah. So uh, love, as I think everyone knows, is a pretty ambiguous and broad and maybe misused concept in some ways. 
Uh, love, as it's defined in Scripture and used most often in the way I mean it here as a virtue, is something that always seeks the actual good of the other. It's an affection, yes, a feeling in that sense, but it also involves the intellect and the will. Love presupposes that the moral agent knows what is good and then wills that for the other and actually does something to bring that good about, if possible, right? So there's a lot that goes into this virtue of love. Love, as Bonhoeffer says, is really the reconciliation of the world to God in Christ. And so in any given circumstance, the right thing to do is the loving thing to do. And the loving thing to do will be the right thing to do. So Christians act with these ends in mind. What is the imitation of Christ? What is the good of the other? That's love, all right? And it's, it's I think, a controversial uh, thing, or at least a, a debatable thing in our time, because, as I say, love is misused a lot. And uh, one way it's misused is that love has come to mean only an affection, And it's misused when, in the name of love, we embrace someone else's sin, which is not to their actual good, right? But it's to their detriment. Just like my inability to say no to my young child would not be to that child's good. If my child wants to eat a half gallon of ice cream for dinner every night, uh, it would not be loving for me to say, you have it your way, you know, um, you you know what's best for you, it's your truth or whatever, okay, uh, go for it. No kind person certainly gets a kick out of saying that someone's deliberate choices are bad for them. So it's a difficult thing to say no, right? But ignoring sin in our own lives or pretending that we have no ground to evaluate a particular practice as sin Regardless of the nature of that sin, this is not the way of love. At least it's not the way of Jesus Christ, who is the primary model of of Christian love, obviously. And when he saw sin, whoever it was, uh, who was committing it, you know, the tax collector, the Pharisee, the Sadducee, the prostitute, whatever it was, the adulterer, he was forgiving, but he didn't hesitate to call what was sin, sin. He said, go and sin no more to the woman caught in adultery. He said to Zacchaeus, the, the tax collector, you know, that he's he needs to repent. And the man repented and, you know, gave back the money um, plus fourfold. So that's what love is. That's why, I mean, it, it is God is love. We're the, the two greatest commands um, are to love God and, and love neighbor. If we can do that and fulfill that, those are really the only rules we need. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up Matthew. That's kind of one of the verses that's really stuck with me, and it drove a lot of the work that I was doing in technology ethics specifically is what does it mean to love God and to love our neighbor as we use these tools? And that's one of the things I was glad in the book that you kind of explained what love is because you rightfully point out there that love is often misunderstood. Love is just simply acceptance in a lot of modern culture today is if you love someone, you'll just do what they want. You'll accept them as they are. 
but love from a scriptural perspective is, you know, ultimately kind of epitomized in Jesus Christ himself, who's full of truth and grace. And so you have this kind of uh, this truth and grace kind of paradigm. And that's what I really loved about kind of explaining a little bit about what love is, because a lot of modern ethics, even sometimes within the Christian church, kind of takes an, an adulterated version of what that virtue of love and just applies it to say, well, love means acceptance. And I think you do a really good job throughout the book kind of balancing that as being full of truth and grace. There is a line, there is a truth, there is an ultimate reality that's ultimately found in God himself. And that to love someone is to help guide them in that path of becoming more like Christ. And unconditional love, I mean, that's a phrase I think that's used a lot. And it's almost meant to say, there's no condition and so it's an unconditional embrace of whatever and, and um, acceptance of whatever that behavior is. But unconditional love simply means if a person's sinning or they're doing wrong or they're doing harm to themselves or others, I still love them. And it's out of love that I try to help correct that person. And that person is sometimes ourselves, right? Um, but it's unconditional love for me to say to my child, this practice or this diet or whatever it is, is harmful to you. Um, That's still unconditional love, but it doesn't mean unconditional acceptance. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on that. Well, I do want to shift gears just a little bit to talk a little bit more about one of the chapters I was really encouraged you included in the book, which isn't in a lot of uh, ethics books, is focused on technology. Obviously, on this podcast, we talk a lot about technology, the way it's forming and shaping us. And one of the reasons I was wanting to have you on the podcast was to talk about that because there are so few ethicists working in technology that I think it was really valuable on that. So in the book, you describe how our societies become more technophiliac in the sense that we're we're kind of obsessed with technology. We look to technology in some sense. We kind of look to technology to solve all of our problems. We want to use more technology to solve in some ways. This is kind of George Grant of saying, Uh, We use technology to solve the problems that technology itself brought, is that we're continually kind of feeding into that. And so I wanted to expand on that. One, why did you want to include this? And then what do you mean by saying that as a society, as human beings, we're kind of technophiliacs, we're kind of more tied to and obsessed with our technologies? Yeah, I just think there are so many ethical issues tied up with technology and particularly the technologies that are most available to us and are have really become a part of our lives. And when I say our, I mean everyone's lives, those things that are omnipresent to us. So um, there are many ethical issues tied up with them. And so when I thought about which topics to include, I mean, I could have, there are many that are excluded in the book that could have been covered as case studies, but it just seems like a pressing problem in uh, churches and in families and just for our society as a whole. So um, I think when I say technophiliac, um, I, I get that that phrase. Uh, I get it from Neil Postman. I don't know if he's first to use it, but he used that uh, decades ago. And the idea there is that modern, as opposed to technophobic, right, So modern Western society has a, I would say, deep, spontaneous, and ubiquitous attraction to technology per se. Newer simply is better, is kind of the idea here. Uh, The burden of proof is on someone who wants to say otherwise. 
And the question is one of evaluation, and that's all I mean. A technophiliac culture automatically and exclusively um, is trained to see only the good in a technology. So that's where the, the evaluative or, or assessment comes in. They see the technology simply by virtue of it being something new as good. Uh, the ethical implication is that we unwittingly embrace technologies that also have negative consequences. So uh, the main question I'm trying to get across, or our point, I suppose, is that we need to step back and be a little more patient and be a little more thoughtful about evaluating technologies and the consequences that come with them. Yeah, to dig in a little bit on that, what are some of the positive ways that you see technology shaping, kind of forming our culture? So what are some of the positive aspects of it? On the flip side, what are some of the kind of the dangerous habits or dangerous tendencies that you're seeing in technology uh, that you either address in the book or you've even thought afterward uh, that you wanted to include about some of the positive and negative ways that technology is shaping and forming our society? Yeah, so when you ask about what, you know, how technology shapes us in positive ways, I have to confess, I have real trouble seeing how we're changed in positive ways by recent technologies. Are there individual advantages to specific technologies? Of course. I love having directions, you know, at my fingertips when I'm driving in an unfamiliar area, and I don't have to pull off to the gas station and ask someone since I wasn't going to do that anyway, right? Um, I love being able to be on a podcast with someone in a different state, you know, and just have obviously many advantages to the technologies. So, but when I think about more than just discrete advantages to this or that technology and the good positive things it does, when you ask about, is there positive shaping that's going on, positive formation of the human person. You know, when I name those positive things, I can't help but see the negative impact of those same technologies when they're used for different things. So another way to respond to your question might be to ask what it means to be shaped in positive ways. I mean, what would we what would we say uh it means to have, be shaped in positive ways for us. What would we mention? Well, someone would be more loving, more in tune with loved ones and other people around them. They would be more virtuous, more Christ-like. Now, which recent technology unequivocally helps us with that, helps us form those virtues? Uh, I have a hard time thinking of, of those. I'm not saying they're not there, but if you have a hard time also thinking of them, then that's basically my point. And we could ask, you know, the question this way, what would it look like to be shaped for a person to be shaped in negative ways? What, what do we mean by that? Well, it would mean the opposite. So it would mean people would be less relational, less loving to others, less connected and in tune with others, less virtuous, are there new technologies that contribute to those realities? Well, yeah, negative influences of technology are everywhere. 
anything that separates us and closes us off from others. Um, when I say, you know, if we're asking the question, does this help me be a more virtuous person? You know, we're sitting there watching TV. I'm not saying a person shouldn't watch TV. I watch TV and it's great for unwinding or for entertainment or whatever. But if you're actually sitting back and, you know, assessing how much time we spend in front of a TV, right? And that was a, a huge issue has been during the pandemic and lockdowns. Well, how many of these shows and hours are actually producing virtue? It's hard to name it, all right? So I remember when I was a kid hearing someone talk about the boxes that characterize American life from the 1950s on. And they kind of meant this metaphorically, but whoever was saying this was talking about the air conditioning and you have these window units, so you have a box there. And what air conditioning does is cause people to go inside their house and close their windows in a way that it didn't before when people used to go outside and connect with others. So the air conditioning, great technology. I have it on right now. I don't want to do without it. But did anybody think about the negative consequences? And then the TV, the other box, starting especially in the 1950s that uh, made its way into every home. And then you have these discrete houses that are now blocked off boxes, effectively closing people off from one another. Well, that was the situation up until the 1990s. And then add to all that the Internet, accessible on our portable devices called smartphones. And... Jason, everyone I talk to that's thoughtful at all uh, recognizes that smartphones are or can be harmful, and they've been devastating to churches and families. So I think it's strange that no one seriously denies that, the harm that can be done, yet very few people can say no to it. So we run a terrible risk of becoming, if we have not already become, slaves to these devices. Well, Technology, again, is neutral, perhaps. There are positive things about it, but we just don't want to be mastered by them. We want to use them for good. We want to use them for virtuous things. But once we're, we become slaves to them, we're sort of losing the battle, I'm afraid. I really like how you picked up. That's one of the big debates within like technology ethics specifically is what shape or what form or what level is technology shaping and forming us as people? Is it simply just a tool or is it something a little bit larger? And I think you're kind of illustrating in some ways. I loved that kind of box metaphor, box analogy, um, because in many ways that reminded me of, uh, of a quote from Martin Heidegger from a long time ago where he talked about technology as a it exists in a web of relations, meaning that a specific technology on its own might not seem really that bad. Maybe it's really not that good, but it's kind of neutral. But when you take it and put it into a context, it actually starts to reshape and reform more than just its direct interaction. So what, you know, like the house or the air conditioning itself is maybe a really good thing, but then it has these negative social consequences uh, not only for the individual, but the community, the family. And that's where you're starting to see that kind of larger web of relations. I really liked how you illustrated that. Well, as we close out our time today, as I know this has been a really fun conversation for me, especially as we talk about technology, I wanted to see, are there one or two books that you might recommend, obviously outside your own, we'll make sure to link to this in the show notes for folks to be able to grab a copy of it. Um, are there any books that you would recommend, maybe one or two or three, 
for listeners that they want to dig a little bit deeper. So they're starting to become interested in ethics. They want to dig a little bit deeper, maybe books that have helped shape or form you over time or books that you really referenced a lot throughout this work uh, that you would recommend listeners pick up. Sure. Yeah. A, a couple come to mind um, just on ethics in general. Uh, one of the, the best and accessible treatments of natural law ethics, which I think is very important part of virtue ethics, is uh, by Jay Budzashevsky. And if you're going to link to it, I am not going to bother spelling his last name. But uh, he, he writes many good things. Uh, the one I have in mind is the book, What We Can't Not Know. I mean, the title sort of says it all, but that's, that's a great book. Um, one that has gotten a lot of recent attention, a recent book um, by Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a little more uh, technical and, and academic uh, than that last one, but really it provides a, a great window into the intellectual background and history of how we got to where we are on a lot of things, not just sexual issues, although that's one of the, the main areas of focus, but just this, um, I think what he calls expressive individualism that uh, really is so dominant in our culture. And I really love the way he shows the connection between Rousseau and then Marx and Freud and critical theory in all kinds of disciplines uh, in the 20th century and how it sort of explains uh, a lot of the, the issues going on in our culture today. And then I often uh, just recommend to people, if they've never read these, the classics, I just think of them as the, the classic dystopian novels. And I recommend them in chronological order of, of their composition or publication. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, George Orwell, 1984, and Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451. And particularly here thinking about technology and what uh, I think some really uh, prescient and, and wise authors, uh, these three uh, writers in, these, in this case, uh, saw in their own time as dangers of where kind of technology was taking us, how it was shaping the human race. And they've been, uh, as I say, very prescient. And we can look back on the last 80 years since um, Brave New World was written and see how accurate a lot of their predictions were. And then Neil Postman, I uh, alluded to him earlier, his uh, two books that are some of my favorites, very accessible books. Again, they're older books now, but worth reading, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and then uh, Technopoly, both very good books that engage some of these ideas, particularly on the, the technology question. Yeah, I really appreciate those, especially the Postman books. We've talked a lot about Neil Postman and his thought as it's formed me and shaped me, um, but it's also been really helpful in kind of diagnosing the situation in the society that we live in with technology. And for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those books in the show notes, as well as the interview that we did earlier this year with Carl Truman about the rise and the fall of the modern self. Um, his book from Crossway, it was really well done, really enjoyed the interview with Dr. Truman. Uh, so we'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well. But Dr. Stanglin, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. This was a really fun conversation. I really encourage listeners, especially those who might want to kind of dig into ethics for the first time, um, to pick up a book like this. It's really accessible. It's really well written. And I just want to say thank you for doing that. 
Um, and thank you for joining us here on Weekly Tech. Thank you for the conversation, Jason. It's been a delight. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Stanglin and learn more about his new book, Ethics Beyond Rules, as well as the recommended resources he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech newsletter that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news and resources. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. 